We're getting to the end of earnings season, but it's not over quite yet. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. It's Thursday. David, yesterday I turned on our show on Roku at home, and my wife's comment to me was, you look terrible. With the beard? <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> Thank you for calling it that. Uh, I prefer to think of myself as looking devilishly handsome, but I am not shaving for all of November. It's the whole no-shave November it's thing. A good cause. I'm using it as an excuse to tell people to uh, donate to the Cure Alzheimer's Fund, curealz.org. Uh, that is not a full affiliate thing. That's just me. But I look terrible for a good reason. Hey, that's all right. And, and hopefully that's good enough. And, and fortunately for listeners on iTunes, they don't have to look at <laughs> my scraggly whatever this is on my face. Let's get to the headlines. First headline of the day. This is from the Sacramento Bee, one of our favorite companies. Markel reports third quarter and nine months results. Exciting headline. Exciting headline. <laughs> it was uh, exciting quarter. I mean, really, these Markel guys know how to party. Um, overall, I, I thought it looked like a fine quarter. It, this is the kind of business where quarter, quarter to quarter, you're not going to see any huge changes. I thought the combined ratio of the insurance operations, that's the profitability of the insurance operations, looked good overall. At the specialty admitted, which, which has typically been higher, uh, so less profitable or not even profitable. Uh, that improved year over year. I thought that was a good sign, but it's just, it's just one quarter. Um, Altera, the reinsurance operation that Markel just recently acquired, uh, the underwriting was, was unprofitable for the quarter. But there are other expenses baked in there. Yep. Again, just one quarter. And Markel is applying its special for- secret formula of, uh, of underwriting there. They actually said in the in the quarterly report, the SEC report, uh, there's a favorable development uh, for the quarter for Altera, which means that they basically added back stuff that they didn't have to pay out from prior years. Which is good. But they said most of which was offset by the impact of applying our more conservative loss-reserving philosophy to Altera's current year loss reserve. So Altera's going to, their operation is going to be getting a little bit more conservative, just like Markel is, and that'll, that'll hurt short-term. But just like this is the reason we love Markel because they're so conservative and they're so good yeah, at underwriting. It's, it's, it was a huge acquisition. This isn't going to be a, a seamless transition, and that's why the quarter was a little bit messy with Altera coming on. But they did like the underwriting to begin with. Right, Altera. right, for sure. But it, it's going to take time for this to flesh out and for them to get the Markel kind of image and culture around the the entire company. So maybe not too much exciting this quarter, but the long-term prospects are still there. Last quick note here, equity investments, big, big deal for Markel. They di- they've been doing well, done well so far this year. CarMax, the largest holding in the portfolio, up 30% this year. Berkshire Hathaway, the second largest holding, up 23% so far this year. There you go. All right, next headline comes from Fool.com. This is our, oh, own, John, our own John Maxwell. He says, Annaly Capital reports disappointing earnings. They reported last night, I think the stock's down maybe 3-4% this morning. I wasn't that surprised by the quarter here. I mean, we knew they were going to be conservative. I wasn't expecting a huge blowout quarter. Net income, lower. Book value, a little bit lower. It looks like we're moving towards probably a dividend cut for Annaly. That's probably not a good thing for some another, people. Another, another dividend. dividend cut for Annaly. And we might be moving into the territory where people start to swear off these mortgage REITs, in my opinion. Once those dividends continue to get cut, I think a lot of people may run for the hills here if you're not getting the income. But I think the economics of the business still makes sense over a longer period of time. I think there are definitely headwinds in the next year or so. 
but over time, I think annually can still produce good returns for shareholders. Leverage it annually right now at 5.4 times. Very that low. Is very low. That is very defensive. Uh, typically, you're really looking at the 8 to 9 times range, but that's when the management team would be feeling more confident about the environment. Spread at just over 1%. That's not, that's not great at all. Return on equity at 5.87%. Mm. And like you said, the dividend, dividend, down, 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 down. This time last year, it was at 50 cents. Uh, Q2 was at 40 cents. Q3, it was at 35 cents. Uh, That's bad news for a lot of people. The question in my mind is, is this, what's going to happen? I mean, obviously, that's the question for everybody. 2003 to 2006, we saw interest rates go up. That's a lot of the problem that we've been seeing now. Uh, the stock took a big hit then. The dividend took a big hit then. But it was able to recover in 2007 on when we got into that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. The problem this time around is that there's not really that respite. Uh, we can't expect that, that in the near term, interest rates are going to turn around and start going down again because they're already so low. So a little bit more concerning from that perspective, but I'd rather be looking at and testing the waters now than two years ago or a year ago. Yeah, and with leverage so low, they have the opportunity to ramp that up if there are opportunities out there. So you're not investing uh, in this company for right now. It's, the situation doesn't look good right now, but I think if you trust the management team and they can ramp and up that's leverage. And import- that's the important thing. Exactly. It's, it's the management team. Yep. Final headline? Final headline. Tip to be square. <laughs> square exploring 2014 IPO with banks. Uh, square, of course, uh, co-founded by Jack Dorsey. Mm-hmm. Also behind Twitter. Twitter. It's having a good day. I think it was up 80% last time I checked when we were walking in here. So. Isn't that a pretty disappointing day when everything seems to be going up 100%? I guess it's an underperformer. Uh, yeah, so, so apparently Dorsey and, and Square starting to talk to investment banks. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, talk to Goldman Sachs, talk to Morgan Stanley. Both banks are on the Twitter IPO. And wouldn't you know it, David Vineer, the former CFO of Goldman Sachs, on Square's board. So I wonder who's going to be the lead underwriter there. I think you're probably right on that. Just a quick note on Square's business. Obviously, this is a little thing that you probably see people oh, yeah. plug it into to their phones, I guess we should to, say to their iPad, iPads. What is it? Who cares what is, what it? It is. Exactly. It's, 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 a hot, it's a hot tech company. It's founded by Jack Dorsey. What else do you need to know? You do need to know some other All things. Right, uh, so it's in the credit card world, but they do not compete with Visa, MasterCard, and Discover. That is not who this is a threat to at all. They're also not an official credit card processor. They're what's known as an aggregator. So they kind of own this whole relationship for merchants, and they make their, their money off charging the merchants a fee, which they then pass on to all these parties. And they charge a little bit more than traditional processors. And they do that because it's so easy. It's so easy for, for mm-hmm. you and I to get a square, plug it in, you pay the flat fee, you pay the percentage there. So I think the business is good from a convenience perspective, but there are cheaper options out there for merchants. It's a cool business, but if you, if you own MasterCard, if you own Visa, don't be, don't be scared that square is I think it's, I think it's an, uh, potentially an enabler for Visa and MasterCard yep. that, it, that it opens up Absolutely. the market to a lot more people to accept those, uh, to a lot more merchants. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's a very niche space. They compete with companies that we don't hear about all the time. It's kind of these into-the-weeds technology companies, data processing, aggregator companies. That's who this is a threat to, not the Visa and MasterCards of the world. Okay, a couple more headlines, rapid-fire style. What do you got? Twitter. Uh, we, we just mentioned Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, <laughs> J.P. Morgan. They are the lead underwriters. Stock up 80%. They don't necessarily get to benefit from that ride there. But all the underwriters on this deal uh, estimated to, to make about $60 million on the IPO. So not huge in the scheme of Goldman Sachs, but $60 million. I, 
I would take it. You mentioned take you mentioned that Square is talking to these same companies. I think it just cements that these investment banks are the global leaders in these big IPOs. Okay, the other other big headline of the day, Wall Street Journal, U.S. third quarter GDP rose 2.8%. That's against 2.5% last quarter. That's against the 2% expectation for this quarter. So again, this is before the government shutdown, before the debt ceiling debate and all that wonkiness went down. Uh, problematic here, consumer spending up just 1.5%. That's pretty sluggish. Um, and, and of course, we're going to have revisions going forward to this number. So who knows whether it will be 2.8% or 1% or 5% uh, a couple months from now. And, and our colleague Morgan Housel recently wrote an article basically saying, hey, GDP, GDP readings don't really tell you too much about the stock market going forward. It could be a 4% growth, but that doesn't mean that we're due for big stock market gains. So it, it's important in terms of the health of the banks, but overall stock market moves, not important really. Okay, in focus for the day, banking multiples, bank stock multiples, where they were, where they are, where they're going, Tell me something, David. Tell me something. Tell me something. I guess we should take a, a quick 30-second kind of aside in terms of what are we talking about bank multiples? What does that mean? If we think about a stock price, the stock price is dependent on the book value of the bank times some multiple. So if the book value is 10, the multiple is 2, the stock price is $20, right? Uh, so this multiple is kind of what the market is willing to pay for that equity, that, that book value. And before the crisis... These well, let, actually, let me add profit. something in there. Let, let me add something in there real quick for, for the folks that are listening that aren't typically investing in banks because they're probably a lot more familiar with the price-to-earnings ratio. Right. Same kind of idea. In that case, you're, you're applying a multiple to the earnings that the company is producing. Mm-hmm. In this case, we're applying a multiple to the book value uh, of the bank. Exactly. Sorry. Continue. Uh, so, so before the crisis, we can say before 2008, these multiples were much higher. Just to throw some numbers out there at you, Bank of America around 3.7 times, Regions Financial three times, U.S. Bancorp five times, Citigroup 3.7 times. Mm-hmm. So for comparison, Bank of America now only about one times, Citigroup below one times. So these multiples have really contracted, and some of the thought is, well, maybe if we get back to those levels of pre-crisis, that could be a lot of upside for these stocks. Do you think that's possible for a Bank of America Citigroup to be trading at over three times tangible book here? Over three times tangible book, not in the near future. And, and so I think the, the components of that is you've got one, one, the banking business. So the banking business first has to recover. We've seen with interest rates so low, the spreads that banks make, that's still the core of the business. The spreads that they make between what they pay for deposits and what they lend it back out on, those have been thinner than normal. So that, that affects the profitability. That affects what investors are willing to pay for the equity mm-hmm. because the equity is not as profitable. Uh, the leverage is another issue. So the more that the bank can leverage itself, the more assets it can hold per unit of equity, that increases the return on equity. That increases what investors are willing to pay for the overall business. And, and finally, you've got the, non, um, the, the, sort of the non-banking, the non-interest sources of income. For U.S. Bancorp, which actually is, has the highest multiple of any of those that you mentioned today, it's uh, t- about 2.7 times. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's still down. I mean, it, it fetched a multiple as high as six times before the crisis. But still, 2.7 times, that's pretty attractive. But U.S. Bancorp has some very attractive non-interest businesses um, that, that continue to, to bring in the money. Bank of America and Citigroup, on the other hand, their non-interest businesses, a lot of the money that they got was on sort of the Wall Street trading side, uh, the investment banking side, and maybe A, 
that income doesn't come back and doesn't grow quite as quickly. And B, investors just aren't willing to value that quite as highly. So if investors mm-hmm. are looking at these businesses as, at, as their component parts, you've got the banking type business, you've got the investment banking type business, and then also in most of these, you've got an asset management type business. So you can have different multiples, different valuations of the different pieces of the business. And investors may be looking at that investment banking part now and saying, I'm not giving nearly as much weight to that. Mm-hmm. So the short answer is no, I don't see three times tangible book value multiples in the near future or in the far future, I mean, depending on how far out we're talking, for Bank of America or Citigroup. But when you're talking about Citigroup at a ten, almost a 10% discount to tangible book value right now and Bank of America just that tangible book value, you don't need to get to three times for investors to see a really good return from here. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's interesting too, it's, it's nice if the multiple goes up uh, that, that can juice your returns there. But even if it goes down, you can still make good returns on a stock. And if we look at U.S. Bancorp, uh, from 2005 to, to 2013, they doubled th- their equity base there. Mm-hmm. On, a per share, on a per share basis, it also doubled. So tangible book per share doubled in, in those eight years. And despite the multiple falling from five times to under three times, you still had a total return of 66%. Through that, through that time right. period there. Because there wasn't the shared dilution there was at Citigroup and Bank of America, that was the big problem at Bank of America. If you look at Bank of America from that same time period, their tangible book value per share is actually pretty flat. Today, it's almost the same as it was back in 2005. Mm-hmm. But that multiple and, and the share dilution just absolutely crushed the returns. You're down 60 70% from 2005. So the share dilution, the multiple contraction, that's what really hurt banks like Citigroup and Bank of America. So, so looking ahead, it's, it's two factors. Not, this oversimplifies it a bit, but it's two factors that investors are going to be looking at. It's, it's one, this multiple that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Multiples are much lower than they were. And multiples are driven by the returns that the banks earn. If a bank's earning a very low return, uh, right now I've got Bank of America, this is Capital IQ's reported number, so this is a little wonky, but 3.3% return on equity. Investors aren't going to pay a lot for that. They're not going to pay a high multiple for that. Citigroup, 6.3% return on equity, same deal. Mm -hmm. So it's the the multiple, so how much they're willing to pay for the multiple, and then it's also the value of the tangible book value per share. Mm -hmm. And, And that grows over time. So you've got the potential for multiple expansion. You've got the potential for growth. So that's every year, bank earns profit. Some of that gets paid out in dividends for most banks. Some of it goes to share, share buybacks. But then the rest of it gets added into that tangible book value per share. Mm-hmm. So that grows. Potentially, the multiple expands. And that's where returns come from. Moving on to our next segment, looking at one of these banks, more specifically, we have the mailbag we do have another question from the mailbag, and keep them rolling in. We love the questions. This one is about Citigroup, one of the banks that we just talked about. And the question is from Goofy Goof T. And he says, love I might name. be one of your only Zoom listeners, and I'm so thankful that he told us he's listening on a Zoom, because that's awesome. If, if anybody else is listening on a Zoom, let us, us. Let, let us know. We want to know what our Zoom listener population is. And he says, but I was wondering about how you feel about Citigroup and where it's headed. I've been in for three years now. And when I saw that he's been in for three years, my first thought was, oh, it's probably had a good run. Uh, but I kind of forgot about that. Oh, t- yeah, 2011, how, how 2011, yeah. It dipped a little bit back down. So the stock's up, but it's lagged the market pretty significantly the last three years. Matt, you're a shareholder. Mm-hmm. Give Goofy Goof T some guidance <laughs> here. Where do you see Citigroup going? 
I I really like I like Citigroup. I like the leadership at Citigroup and uh, Corbett is turning it into I, I think even more so. Yeah, I think even more so than Bank of America. Corbett is turning Citigroup into a pretty vanilla banking operation, but with the global with the global opportunity. Um, the uh, the the current results are are bad. I mean, they're just bad. So, so if you're looking at the the results right now, they're not very encouraging. But the idea is that you get city city holdings continue to get that cleaned up, and Corbett's got to have a good handle on that because mm-hmm. he ran that business before he was CEO. Uh, so you get city holdings wound down, and then you get Citicorp, which is kind of the good businesses that they like. You get them to be a more prominent part of the business. And and you continue to to benefit from that global exposure, which which I do think is a benefit. I think there are obviously some risks, uh, particularly in the emerging markets. Uh, we talk about China; everybody's concerned about China, mm-hmm. um, and and I think a lot of the other emerging markets there are concerns as well. However, I, I like the idea of being exposed to all those markets because you're just you're going to see better growth over time. From those markets than you will for the U.S. Yeah, and Corbett's come out and said he set the goals that they want to get to return on assets of around 1%. With decent leverage, they probably have an ROE of around 10 12%, and baking in the discount that it's trading today. If they hit those goals, which they're not guaranteed to hit them, but if they do, I think you can expect pretty solid returns out of Citigroup. Yeah, I... We, we talked about earlier in the week, would you rather short Bank of America or Citigroup? I'm not shorting either one of them, but I just feel like at this point, Citigroup is just has a better handle on things and has less big risk that it's facing than Bank of America. Um, I own both, but I'm a big fan of Citigroup. And it took me too long to get there. Mm-hmm. Oh, the other thing that I should mention is, is Citigroup's equity, equity base and, and capital. They've just gone over and above uh, building that equity base. And that not only keeps them safe, but it also is sort of a springboard for the future as they work that back down, as they get the leverage back up, you can see better returns. Well, I hope, that's, that's I hope Goofy Goof T is, is satisfied at the answer. And you can always email us. We are at always. WTMI at fool.com. That's the email. Email your questions, comments, and we will answer them here. It's what we do. That is what we do. Next segment, the game for get the day. day. Game for the day. Game for the day is... I've got the wrong game in here. I've got fool in the blank. It's full, it is Fool in the blank. It's, it's Thursday. Thursday. It's Fool in the blank. Let's go ahead and get the first Fool in the blank up there. David Blank has taken Diamond's title as best banker. This was a tough one, and my first reaction was Lloyd Blankfein. But that's that's not what I'm going to go with. I think John Stump has taken the title as best banker. You look at at Wells Fargo compared to its competitors. We've talked about this week how they've largely skirted all these issues, and most of the issues that plagued the big banks very, very good manager of the bank, very good capital allocator in terms of when to, when to pressure the mortgage business, when to step on the gas there, when to take your foot off the gas. I'm going with Stump. What do you say? I had to think fast because you stole my answer. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have thought of Lloyd Blankfein, though. Uh, John, John Stump has done an excellent job. Wells Fargo, though, has a, has a good culture, so it's not hard to step in there. Uh, you know, let me throw out Steven Steiner, uh, the CEO at Huntington Bank Shares. Uh, I think he's done a great job since he's taken over at Huntington, and that was uh, just after the financial crisis, really. Uh, love his strategy. Love the focus on customers. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that business, and, and a lot of that is due to his leadership. Good, good strategy as long as they don't overpay for acquisitions. I would agree, but we'll see. Next, next scenario. Next scenario we got right. is blank is one company I'd like to see go public. Um, 
Yeah, am I allowed to say square since we already talked no, about? You can't say square. Why can't I say square? You got to think of another one off the top of your head. Um, off the top of my head. All right, you go. I'm gonna go with the person who made this shirt. I'm going with Bonobos, the online clothing mm. retailer. Yeah. Small, small That's niche market there. Very good customer service. You, you can buy clothes. You can send it back. Free shipping, free returns. They already they give you the box with the label in it. It's so easy. Great clothes. They fit well. Going with Bonobos. What about, what about Zappos? Oh, they're, oh, owned, no, by yeah, they're owned by Amazon. Spin-off. Hire Sp- Goldman Sachs, Hi- spin-off. Hire Goldman Sachs, spin-off Zappos, take it public. There we go. Bonobos and Zappos pair up. Same I don't, I don't think that's happening. Or maybe Rue La La. All right. I, I, think, I think single-handedly my, my wife is, is bankrolling Rue La La. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. it's, it's a great business, though. So mm-hmm. I, I can't complain. It's a great model. All right. Finishing off. Finishing off, as we always do, Twitter sphere. David, first tweet. First tweet is from Wells Fargo. They say, understand the four stages of IPO planning from Wells Fargo Private Bank before your pump company goes public. So I guess Wells Fargo, and I, I talk about how it's possible that their investment bank could grow to be a little bit of a bigger player. You have your doubts. You think Wells Fargo is just this eensy-beensy little player in, in the investment bank market. But I don't think it is. I know Okay, it is. I know it is now, but I th- I'm, I'm talking 20 years here. I think Wells Fargo has the opportunity to build out the investment bank, but I think you have your doubts. Is it- yeah. You really think that that's going to happen? I think it's a reasonable expectation. Why? I don't know. I, I think it's a natural progression with them. They have the, cu- the customer business. They have a big corporate business. They're mm-hmm. doing business. They're lending. They're, they're in the boardroom with these companies. I think it's a natural progression to bring on the investment bank. But Could, could be. I, I mean, the, the, the big banks have a distinct advantage in getting investment banking business because they can provide the lending right along with the advisory services. Mm-hmm. So there's that. I just don't know. It's the the brand isn't there to be able to compete with Goldman Sachs, to be able to compete with even Morgan Stanley, certainly JP Morgan. Remains to be seen. All right, next tweet. Next tweet. We've got Deal Breaker. Goldman Sachs spells out new Saturday rule for junior employees. So Goldman Sachs wants to make it an easier lifestyle, somewhat easier lifestyle for its junior employees. It, it's commendable. So, so one thing is is that they don't want them getting sick, having bad things happen to them mm-hmm. when you work too many days without sleeping, without showering, without eating, all that kind of stuff. It's bad for you. And, and on the on the other hand, they want to attract the best. They want to attract the best and brightest. And making it a better work environment helps do that. And they want junior employees to make a career out of being at Goldman Sachs, and that's that's a good idea too. Now. Whether that actually happens remains to be seen. I have my doubts. I think this is a classic unintended consequences here. Okay, you can't work Saturday, but those nights that you were going home at midnight on Wednesday, you're going home at four now. I think this is just going to kind of reallocate the the time working to the middle of the week. Maybe. Having been in the investment banking business early in my career, I think what would be great with this is that if they realize, if the uh, vice presidents and associates realize that they don't have quite as much time to dole out, they can't just assume that the analysts will be working around the clock every single day, maybe they'll get a little bit smarter about what work they're having them do. I, I won't lie. I did a lot of work. I made a lot of pitch books that I never should have had, to, that, that never needed to be made. Interesting. 24-year-old Matt's coming out and he's angry. <sighs> Final tweet of the day. Got to find my happy place. from the dumb money. <laughs> Got to find my happy place. He says, it's hard to be really bearish on the Twitter IPO while using Twitter. Are you bearish or bullish on, bullish on the Twitter IPO? I think I, I just said it's up 80% so far last time I checked. 
What are your thoughts here? I don't think you're, I don't, if I had to guess, I don't think you're investing, but. I'm not, no, 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 I'm not investing. As a rule, as a rule, I don't buy IPOs on the first day. It's just, I just think it's a bad thing to do. And particularly when an IPO is up 80%, 100% on the first day, there is serious froth there. And so my, my deal is just step back, let everybody calm down, catch their breath, get their, you know, get their heads back together, we're, we're, and then I'll think about we it. We were just talking about the investment bankers. I wonder all those analysts that worked all those late nights developing this valuation model saying it's worth $26, <laughs> and then the first minute of trading, it's up 80 So it's, oh, man, I did all that work, and my well, valuation was not even close. That doesn't say that it's not actually worth 26 That's true. They, are, they are, you, are you buying are you buying Twitter? I'm not. I'm not buying, but I, I do. Th- We're big fans of Twitter here. I, yeah, we, we are. We love we Twitter. Twitter. We're on Twitter at TMF Financials. So I, I like the business. Uh, I, I think Twitter's got a. I, I like Twitter better than Facebook. I'll put it that way. I don't think it's going around. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I'll put it that way. I think it's going to be around for a long, long time. So we got the Twitter listeners, uh, viewers can find us on Twitter at TMF Financials. They can email us wtmi at fool.com. and. Probably should go ahead and mention we do have a special report that listeners and viewers can get their hands on. Email warren at fool.com to get that report absolutely for free. Uh, Warren Buffett's greatest advice. Sounds good. Sounds great. (laughs) Well, that's our show for today, folks. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow.